Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. But once a month, we do a special bonus episode where we look at horror adjacent films. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Ben? Um, I'm a little tired, if I can be honest. I just need there to be more hours in a day. Yeah. I just don't have enough time to do all the things that I need to get done all the time. And I need more time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the way it is, I suppose, when you get older. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> How are you? Um, I'm doing all right. I am excited for today's movie. It was a contentious poll on our Patreon. Um, Yes. So all patrons of the night, regardless of whatever they pledge at, uh, they are able to vote for whichever movie we watch. And it was neck and neck with this movie and Hound of the Baskervilles, the first Sherlock Holmes movie. Yeah, the the first um, Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movie. I mean, Basil Rathbone is Sherlock Holmes, Ben. Let's be serious. (laughs) Um, But uh, we ultimately had to make the call, and so we rolled a die, and we wound up with Calling Dr. Death for today's movie. Yes. Calling Dr. Death is the first of a series of movies from Universal Studios called The Inner Sanctum Mysteries. And they were a series of movies that I had to like make a call about whether to include them Mm. in the main show or not, because they are definitely horror adjacent. I mean, they are produced and written and starring people who are very familiar. If you watch, you know, the universal monster movies of the 1940s and they certainly employed a marketing scheme that makes them look very similar to universal's horror movies They're in the same wheelhouse, you know, Mm -hmm. but they're not quite horror movies. They're like little mystery thrillers, I guess, with weird elements, like with weird fiction kind of elements or things to make them a little bit more unusual than like your standard mystery movie, I guess. But it's, it's, it's all kind of gimmicky and it's not really designed to be scary. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing to point to to show that this isn't horror is Lon Chaney Jr. stars in all of them. Yes, correct. And he was excited. I'm sure you'll get into this, but he was excited about it because he was wanting something other than the horror fair that Universal was sending his way. Yeah, exactly. So he's like, oh, great. This is an opportunity to get outside of horror. So if your star is like, this isn't horror and that's why I'm doing it, that is a pretty big indicator that these are horror adjacent. Yeah. So we ended up, you know, not watching these um, for the regular show, Um, but we certainly, you know, mentioned them a lot because of that crossover in cast and crew between them. That being said, the branding inner sanctum mysteries um does not originate with this movie no it's uh 
started out as a hardcover imprint from publishing house Simon & Schuster. As a publishing house, Simon & Schuster started in 1924, and Inner Sanctum as an imprint started in 1930. So pretty early in their history. If you're curious about where the name comes from, it comes from an advertising column that Simon & Schuster used to run in the New York Times that was basically kind of like a preview of like, what's coming? It's the Inner Sanctum, kind of like you know, your ears to the wall, you're hearing what's being talked about in the inner sanctum of Simon and Schuster. Oh, it's, it's, it's the fan club. Yeah. Okay. Um, and how that column was named is, uh, there were a series of offices in the Simon and Schuster building called the inner sanctum as like a colloquial joke of like who basically worked in those offices. The Marvel bullpen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you might be going like, okay, then why is that being used for the imprint? So it was a means of featuring novels and publishing novels that um, different people at Simon & Schuster felt were like, this is like good for us to publish. You know, this is like important in some kind of literary way. Um, So, you know, it's like our recommendation for something you should read. The imprint started in 1930, but it found its biggest supporter in Lee Wright, who became its editor in 1935 and then senior editor in 1944. She would spearhead a range of different types of novels and overall success. And it's actually Wright who brought in the different genre classification of the imprint. So originally when Inner Sanctum started, it was like, Here's a book, and there will be a thing that says, like, an inner sanctum novel. Okay. Um, through Wright, introducing um, kind of genre classifications, they would now be color-coded. A blue cover would denote kind of more of a serious drama. Red cover would denote romance or something kind of like a lighter fare. And then a green cover would be a mystery or detective novel. Mm-hmm. And emphasis on novel. These are not pulp. Pulp tended to be like magazine or paperback. This is hardcover. Uh, You might consider it like capital L literature, you know, like they're taking themselves seriously here. Okay. Another up and comer at Simon & Schuster that I want to note here is a guy named Leon Shimkin. He started working there in 1924. So when the publishing house started um, and he started there as a bookkeeper, eventually rising to become a business manager. He would provide the idea for an early Simon & Schuster bestseller called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, it's um, written by the author, but it was Shimkin who came up with the idea of taking this author's, like, lectures and putting them into a a novel in this format. Got it. Um, So that... Novel, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was published in 1936, and it was, like, a huge hit. Um, And, like I said, one of Simon & Schuster's earliest hits as a publishing house. So Simon & Schuster were like, hey, Shimkin, you're doing really awesome stuff. Here's a $25,000 bonus. And Shimkin was like, "Mm, no thanks. Can I have a third of the company instead? (laughs) And they agreed. Wow. I guess you you miss all the shots you don't take, right? (laughs) It's a real Don Draper move, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but it turned out to be a wise business decision as much of Simon & Schuster's success comes from ideas and activities that Shimkin would put forward, including the paperback pocket books imprint, which started in 1939 um, and led to Simon & Schuster's you know, profits going way up, being able to sell into like a magazine market without actually publishing magazines. Another Shimkin idea was to sell adaptation rights to imprints or books or series uh, for some quick cash. Sure. And this is how the radio program Intersync to Mystery got started in 1941. Shimkin was like, let's get this anthology radio show going and we'll let you use the name Intersync to Mystery because mystery seems to be like kind of the biggest seller right now. And the only catch is that at the end of every program, you have to pitch to the audience the most recent published title. The man in charge of putting this radio program together is radio producer Hyman Brown, uh, though he would often just go by Hi. Hi, Brown. Hi, hi. <laughs> so Inner Sanctum Mysteries would be produced at NBC. And Brown, even by this time, is a huge name in radio as a producer. He's worked behind the scenes on major radio shows like Another Thin Man, Dick Tracy, Flash Gordon, and he's worked across all major networks over his 65-year career. He actually started as a radio voice actor and then decided, you know what? I think I can do this better mm -hmm. and started pitching shows to ad agencies directly and then just kind of grew from there. With Inner Sanctum Mystery, Brown saw yet another huge success, ultimately having over 500 broadcasts and having the show run until October 1952. So 11 years. Damn. And already, like as the radio show started out, the mystery titles of the imprint were kind of outselling the romance and drama. But with the radio show, mystery just kind of blew drama and romance out of the water. And the imprint basically became just inner sanctum mystery rather than, you know, Got the it. romance drama yeah. sides. And in fact, Brown is so tied to the success of the radio show that he would be involved in helping produce the TV series in 1954. Oh, damn. I didn't know there was a TV series. It only ran for um, January to November, I think, 1954. Okay. So in radio, producing and directing are very interrelated. There's not quite the division of labor that we see in film. So Brown would be directly involved in directing some of these episodes. Um, and he worked very closely with show host Raymond Edward Johnson. Now, Johnson started in radio in 1932, um, having transitioned to radio from theater. He grew his career and cut his teeth in Chicago and then New York, and uh, then reached his most famous role as your host, Raymond, with Inner Sanctum Mystery. And I don't think it's um, hyperbolic to say that uh, without your host, Raymond, we wouldn't quite get to Rod Serling or even the Crypt Keeper because of the way that he would deliver everything was very like proto Rod Serling with like um, a very macabre take. He would often end some of the broadcasts with a line, pleasant dreams. Hmm? <laughs> and uh, other, you know, fun little gags like that. 
He would voice other programs as well, though in 1945, he left Intersinctum Mystery to go serve with the U.S. Army. Uh, so to replace the host, actor Paul McGrath was brought in. Um, he had been working in radio since 1940, so five years under his belt. And rather than taking on the moniker Raymond, which was just named after Raymond, uh, he became known as your host or Mr. Host. Hmm. Starting in 1945, Lipton Tea began sponsoring Inner Sanctum Mystery. And they, because like it's a hugely popular show, so they, you know, Lipton Tea wants to get in, but they also don't really know how to deal with the fact that it's like a macabre horror adjacent show. Right. So they brought in their own um, spokeswoman who was known as the Tea Lady, uh -huh. who would deliver the like the ad basically and would have some banter with the hosts, basically saying like, Oh, Mr. Host, you don't need to be so macabre. Uh -huh. Like, kind of banter like that. Okay. Very, very fun. Typically, the show would start with some spooky jazz organ, and then uh, its characteristic creaking door, and then the host would acknowledge you. Hello. 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 Oh. Oh, there you are. I was afraid for a moment that you had forgotten our appointment. Why, you almost scared me to death. And that won't do after all the pains I've taken to scare you. You remember me, don't you? I'm your host on behalf of the makers of Carter's Pills. And you're to be my guest tonight in the mysterious circle of the inner sanctum. And uh, at that point, there would be, you know, the ad. And then the host would introduce the story of that week um, because it is an anthology show. And they would usually have a stream of consciousness uh, structure because um, that works really well for radio. Um, and then that was that was the show. And like we already kind of said, it's not quite horror. Uh, people tended to describe it more as like a spooky mystery or a thriller mm -hmm. kind of story. There would be something like weird about it but it was not straight up horror and definitely not horror in the sense of like what you see in later anthology shows of this ilk like the twilight zone or even alfred hitchcock presents so that brings us to the movie series mm -hmm. um so you can you know kind of follow the dots between successful books to successful radio to film mm -hmm. universal studios purchased the rights uh, to the Inner Sanctum Mysteries from Simon & Schuster in June of 1943, um, though it was certainly the success of the radio show that informed their interest. Um, Universal Studios, to remind you, at this time was under the control of Standard Capital, and this was sort of the universal period of just making like a lot of cheap product and not being super like ambitious with things because we're just trying to get our return on investment here, right? The deal uh, between Universal and Simon & Schuster was kind of like stacked in Simon & Schuster's favor, mm -hmm. really. Um, for one thing, uh, Universal only bought the rights to the use of the Inner Sanctum Mystery name. Yeah. And that was it. Um, they received no story rights to any of the novels or any of the radio stories, they couldn't even use the radio show's famous creaking door 
opening. So the Universal movies have this really weird opening uh, with the head of actor David Hoffman bobbing in a crystal ball, staring out at the audience and warning everyone watching the movie that they're all capable of murder. (laughs) Just like super bizarre. B-movie unit producer Ben Pivar was placed in charge of the intended series. Um, We know him you know, best as doing a lot of the Universal Monster B movie series like The Mummy and the Jungle Woman movies. Anyways, he was put in charge and his first task was finding a story for the initial entry uh, since they couldn't actually use Mm -hmm. the stories from the series. This meant that Pivar had to kind of turn to Universal's story department. Um, He ultimately bought a script from Edward Dean, who was a Universal reader Uh, who submitted this screenplay he had written on his own time, kind of freelance. Pivar planned to produce two Inner Sanctum Mysteries a year, all to star Lon Chaney Jr. and Gail Sondegaard. Chaney was hopeful that the series would allow him to stretch his acting chops and diversify outside of monster movies. Uh, His previous film to this would have been Son of Dracula. Mm -hmm. Director Reginald LeBorg, was chosen by Pivar. Um, this would be LeBorg's second feature film after having done a musical comedy, which had been his first feature film after having done like a long series of um, musical shorts. Wild choice. Like we know in the future, you know, LeBorg goes on to do much more horror and yeah. he really like hones his chops there. But like, wild choice so pivar felt that laborg at this time had the hunger to take on an assignment like the inner sanctum series okay it was just like yeah like do you want like to make two movies a year in this series uh so it was more about stamina yes it was like oh you're young you're an (laughs) up-and-comer you don't know how to say no to a producer yet great um and then from there because laborg did these inner sanctum movies you know pivar started using him for the mummy movies and then you know all these other horror assignments followed that it was cheney who insisted on a script change uh that would become a trademark of the movie series um you could see this maybe as trying to bring it closer to the radio show but the truth of the matter is that cheney felt challenged by the technical dialogue of his character in this film, who's a doctor. Um, And so he asked that the film feature a stream of consciousness style narration of his character's thoughts so that he could read any heavy exposition in a recording booth with a script in front of him. Ah, sure. Pivar supported this decision because he felt it would help the audience follow along with the mystery. LeBorg felt that the truth of the matter was that Pivar wasn't a very, like, smart, literary-minded man. And LeBorg thought that Pivar kind of assumed that audiences who came to his movies were of similar intelligence level to him. Okay. Um, So, you know, a low opinion of the audience's intelligence. Shortly before filming was to begin, uh, Gail Sondergaard was dropped from the cast, and her role was rewritten for actress Patricia Morrison. No official reason was given, but LeBorg felt it was largely due to the leftist activism activities of Sondergaard and her husband, Herbert J. Bieberman, um, who would both be blacklisted during the Red Scare of the 1950s. Mm -hmm. I think we talked a little bit about that in um, Revenge of the Spider-Woman. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Ah, I was close. 
Her replacement, Patricia Morrison, was born in Manhattan in 1915. She was the daughter of an Irish actor and a British spy. She studied art, fashion, and acting in school, and she began acting in 1933, mostly serving as an understudy for Broadway actresses. She was scouted by Paramount for her dark hair and blue eyes, which in the 30s was enough to get you pegged as exotic. Whatever it takes to not actually cast a woman of color. She never rose up very far at Paramount. She was often cast as like bad girls or like the other woman um, in like second tier pictures. She left Paramount to do USO tours during the war and she returned to cinema after as a freelancer. It was during this freelance period that she appeared in Calling Dr. Death. Her greatest success as an actress came later when she returned to Broadway with roles in Kiss Me Kate and The King and I in the late 40s into the 1950s. Is she the female lead in The King and I? Yes, she didn't originate the part. She was the second actress in the role, but she did originate the female lead in Kiss Me Kate. Okay. She passed away in 2018 at age 103. Damn, that's a long run. Yeah. Cheney's foil in the film is played by J. Carol Nash, who had appeared as the villainous Dr. Daka in the Batman serial earlier in this year, and he would appear in a number of horror pictures later in 1944, like, like Jungle Woman, among many others. Actress and pinup model Ramsey Ames appears in the film as Cheney's wife, she would be his love interest again, in a way, when she played the Princess Ananka in The Mummy's Ghost uh, next year. In a way. <laughs> Heavy emphasis. <laughs> the rest of the cast is filled out with universal regulars like David Bruce, who had just appeared in The Mad Ghoul, Faye Helm, who had appeared in The Wolfman and Captive Wild Woman, and Holmes Hebert, who we know from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mystery of the Wax Museum, The Invisible Man, Mark of the Vampire, The Ghost of Frankenstein, The Invisible Agent, and The Undying Monster, among other films. The film shot for 20 days in October and November of 1943. That's a long time. Yeah, I, you need a lot of takes with Cheney. Oh. Uh, while Cheney could be difficult on set in this period, uh, Patricia Morrison had positive memories of him as a nice but shy man, um, which is very similar to like what many of his female co-stars remembered about him. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of his like female co-stars generally reported him to be like a very nice and like gentle person, um, which stands in stark contrast to other memories of him when he would like go on his drinking benders and like go on rampages and stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason why drinking and alcoholism is tied to Jekyll and Hyde. Sure. You know? Yeah. So Calling Dr. Death was released by Universal on December 17th, 1943. It received lukewarm reviews from critics, uh, with the New York Times saying, it has a dreary habit of talking itself out of promising situations. <laughs> um, many critics noted that Cheney seemed miscast, that the voiceovers eliminated all sense of suspense, and uh, modern critics have largely agreed, uh, noting the Inner Sanctum films as a whole as being kind of a missed opportunity. Okay. So how are we watching this? So Calling Dr. Death is available with all of the Inner Sanctum mystery movies on DVD or on Blu-ray, um, just sort of in a set. It's like the Inner Sanctum Mysteries complete film collection. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
Um, actually related to that, uh, if you search, you can probably find some old recordings of the old radio show on the Internet Archive or other sites. Uh, so check it out if you're like really curious about that as well. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Calling Dr. Death from 1943, directed by Reginald LeBorg. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Calling Dr. Death from 1943, directed by Reginald LeBorg. We've both seen this movie before. Yeah, we picked up the Inner Sanctum's mystery box set for like a as a deal mm-hmm. um, at a local store. And so we tried watching a couple and then decided to like table it because we knew that they would be considered for horror adjacent bonus episodes like this one sure um so fairly recently like maybe like six ish months yeah i feel like it was in the summer like somewhere in august yeah same same feel as when i first saw it like oh interesting okay yeah yeah um i don't think this movie is bad Mm. uh mostly i think it's kind of half baked yeah yeah let's talk about the story which is simultaneously very simple and a little convoluted Ain't that just the way with the low-budget movies? Yeah. Neurology. Neurology. Dr. Mark Steele is a respected neurologist uh, who speaks to himself in his thoughts. Don't we all? He does it in a weird way. (laughs) Um, He uses hypnotherapy uh, to help his patients, yet for some reason he can't understand his wife, Maria. Beautiful Maria. Now, poor Maria is suffering from misogynist writing. She hates Mark. She's cheating on him and laughs in his face when he's like, we can't go on like this because she's like, I like my position in society as a doctor's wife and you make lots of money so I can spend it and I'm never going to let you out of this. (laughs) Yeah, she's a real bitch. Now, after a particularly bad fight, Maria heads to their lodge for the weekend with her little buddy, with her boyfriend, and Mark drives out to confront her. But he's like mad with rage a bit. And the next thing we know, he wakes up Monday morning at his office with like no memory of what happened that weekend. Bad sign, Doc. Then it turns out Maria's been murdered. Now, Mark's nurse, Stella, is clearly, like, they're clearly in love with each other. Um, And Stella gives Mark an alibi by saying, like, just say you were with me. And, you know, we don't know where you were, but just say you were with me. Um, And he goes out to the cabin to identify the body. Uh, It turns out Maria had been killed by a blunt object to the head and then acid to the face. Mm Mm-hmm. And Inspector Greg is here. He clearly suspects Mark. After identifying the body, Mark happens to find, like, a missing button at the crime scene. Uh, And it turns out that's from his jacket. 
but he takes that and doesn't mention it to the police. Now, like I said, Stella and Mark have feelings for each other, but Mark is getting... Mark is becoming overwhelmed with fears that he did it because he he doesn't know for sure. Because it, you know, really looks like he did it. Yeah. Uh, And that's until a Robert Duvall, (laughs) straight off the the Godfather lot, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) he's found. And um, he was Maria's boyfriend and he's brought in for having murdered Maria. Now, he swears that he's innocent and begs Mark help um so mark decides okay i'll hypnotize myself and have stella like record my answers and we'll get to the bottom of like did i actually kill maria and when they play this back for inspector greg uh mark's like yes i drove out to the cabin but i left she was alive and in my rearview mirror i saw duval entering the cabin now duval goes through a trial and he's sentenced to death and his Duval is married, and his disabled wife comes to see Mark to be like, please, you have to help my husband. We were in a loveless marriage, especially since I um, fell downstairs and became paralyzed a year ago. And, you know, he, he was getting money from your wife, but like he didn't kill her. I know he didn't kill her. So Mark goes to Duval in jail to be like, okay what's going on here? Like your wife asked me to help, like what's going on? And Duval says that like, yeah, it all started out as a way to get money from your wife. And I got about 10 grand, but then I realized I was actually falling in love with her. So I gave back half the money and, you know, we were going to run off together, but Maria, she was a real bitch to me too. And Mm -hmm. like had multiple masks she would wear. And, um, she was like laughing in my face. And so I stormed out mad, but when I left, she was alive. Mark's like, but so you gave back half the money. What about the other half? And Duval's like, uh, uh, um, no answer. As the date for Duval's execution, because he he's been sentenced to death, um, as his execution date approaches, uh, Stella is becoming like really overwrought with like everything that's going on. And Mark thinks like, oh, well, you're overworked. So why don't we take a little vacation? And Stella's like, okay, yeah, like I'll go up to visit my parents. You go to the lake to go fishing and um, we can like drive up together because it's like nearby and it'll be a nice weekend away. And Mark's like, well, if you're being overworked, why don't we get someone to handle the books? Like we'll hire a little secretary. She can handle the finances while you can keep being a nurse rather than you doing literally everything. Yeah, she's like his nurse, his secretary, his accountant. Like, yeah. Yeah, real Jill of all trades, you know? Um, And she's like, okay, yeah, we'll get a girl. When they arrive next Monday back to the office, there's been a fire. Um, Luckily, it was caught before the building burned down, but all of the records have been burned up, including records that would have shown the uh, 10K that Duval got from Maria. Now, Inspector Greg has continue to loom around and walk into doorways to like pester mark and he arrives and notices that uh, there was acid set up to fall from like a telephone bell ringing basically you call it would disrupt the acid and that's what started the fire and he notes that someone had called the office that morning long distance from the lake where stella and mark would have been near 
So Inspector Craig is now eyeing Mark and Stella, but he kind of leaves it. It's now the day before Duval's execution, so to distract themselves, Mark and Stella go out all night, and they're not having fun at a show, going out drinking, whatever. So they head back to the office, and Mark actually ends up hypnotizing Stella. And we see that she was in cahoots with Duval all along. She's where the other 5K went. Uh, she didn't want to give the money back because Duval was telling the truth about wanting to give all the money back and wanting to marry Maria. So it was Stella who killed Maria, framed Duval, and then burned the records to hide all trace of the financial finagling. And Inspector Greg comes in after Stella's woken up from the hypnosis because Greg and Mark were collaborating together to get Stella to tell the truth. They call off the execution, Stella's taken away, and Inspector Greg has like a brief moment to like take a cigarette, and then he's off to solve the next murder. The end. Yeah. You so, know what, what doesn't really happen, Ben? What? No one picks up the phone and calls Dr. Death. No. Even the murder itself doesn't happen because of a phone call. The fire, but that's it. Yeah, like, Inspector Greg certainly calls upon Mark Steele excessively often. But, like, the doctor wasn't the murderer. Mm -hmm. He isn't, like, dubbed Dr. Death by, like, the press or something or by, like, like, Greg never calls him that. And yeah, like calling him on the phone is not like a major plot point. It's a terrible title. Bad yeah, title for the story. Bad. Um, so in case it wasn't clear, um, Lon Chaney was Mark. Um, Patricia Morrison was the nurse, Stella. And J. Carol Nash was Inspector Greg. Yeah. And I think for me, at least, um, Nash is the best performance in the movie. Oh, he's so good. It's like, uh, you know, if you enjoyed Columbo being like a one more thing, Columbo is like the lawful good, whereas J. Carol Nash is like the true neutral. <laughs> sure. Um, Nash is clearly enjoying playing like the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, the spider kind of drawing the other characters into his web. He is, you know, the most charismatic character in any scene that he's in. Like, he really should have gotten, like, his own, like, spinoff series. Well, that makes me wonder, you know, the imprint, uh, Inner Sanctum Mystery, would be mystery stories as well as detective stories. So I wonder if Jake Harrell Nash thought maybe this was going to be a little bit more of a detective story, or at least that's how he plays it. Mm-hmm. He's certainly more interesting than the other people in the story. Mm -hmm. He has, like you said, this very like lawful neutral thing going around where like it's just his job to catch the murderer. And like he doesn't seem to really care about these people as people too much, you know? Yeah. Um, cool motive, still murder kind of guy, <laughs> you know? On the other hand, I feel like Cheney and the rest of the cast sort of alternate between like overacting and underacting in like very odd places and times so the actress playing maria yeah she overacts and i can't really blame her for it because the script calls for it yeah she's supposed to be very like overwrought and a little bit over the top she just doesn't do it in a way that like feels like anything other than acting you know what i mean yeah and <laughs> 
kind of why I said she's suffering from misogynist writing. Like, there's no reason for her to be behaving this way and laughing in his face about it. And she's like, you don't have the spine for murder, Mark. Right. Like, there's no reason for her to be acting that way. There's no reason for her to be acting that way with Duval either, besides, well, the plot needs it. Well, like, you know, I'm not going to say that it's completely unrealistic that a person like Maria could exist. Um, it's just the fact that it kind of comes down to bitches be crazy, I guess. Which, like, for a script that's ostensibly interested in the mind yeah. and, like, psychology is kind of shitty, right? Yeah. Like, because if we're going to be interested in those things, like, it would be interesting to get into, like, what's Maria's deal? Because, yeah, what we're sort of told is that she's, like, super selfish and just kind of out for herself and kind of cruel, but that she wears this like mask of being this like beautiful woman to like draw people in so she can take advantage of them. That's sort of interesting, but she's not really who the story's about, right? Like she's just here to get murdered. Mm -hmm. And she has to be bad. So we don't feel bad that she gets murdered. Yeah. And so that like, you know, cause we have to kind of be convinced that Chaney did it for a while. And so it has to be like, okay, here's why he did it. And this kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And then it just turns out like, oh no, it's his nurse who had a crush on him. Right. Yeah. Which like would be very easy to see coming. Like it's a very simple twist. The thing that's trying to obfuscate it is this like gimmick of making the story about a psychologist and like self-hypnosis and like, you know, oh, what happened when I blacked out? And like, oh, there are things about man's mind that we don't understand. Like maybe I could have committed murder without knowing it, just like anyone in the audience could. And, you know, so I have to remind listeners, this movie was coming out in a time where like in the 1940s, movies treated psychologists like with the same kind of like, ooh, what are they? What do they do? How, ooh, hypnosis. <laughs> like kind of like feeling that like, you know, movies from the 50s treat aliens or movies from the 60s treat drugs. Like it's just this like thing that can do anything, right? Yeah, we're not quite at uh, Bridie Murphy mm. relations to hypnosis, but it's definitely a, uh, you know, under hypnosis, you don't really... You know, your subconscious comes through and that thing is just pure id. Right. So I don't really understand how hypnosis works. And from what I understand, no one does. No. Like no one can, because it's like a super subjective experience, basically no one can tell if it is legit or bullshit. Yeah. Um, but even if it's legit, I'm pretty sure self-hypnosis is like not a thing. That's just going to sleep. Right. <laughs> um... And it's almost kind of insulting because he's like, okay, Stella, like you're going to control like the lights and the, the metronome thing that is not a good metronome because in from shot to shot, it's pace changes, yeah. which drives me wild. Um, but like, you're going to control that stuff and you're going to ask me the questions. And it's like, okay, so isn't she the one putting you under hypnosis then? It's like, no, 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 this is self-hypnosis. You're just assisting me. Misogyny. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there's this gimmick here and that's sort of what the movie's based around but without the amnesia and the self-hypnosis providing that like new angle um it's a very bog standard plot um to the point where there's really not enough story here even for the measly hour that mm -hmm. this movie is which i think is why we bring in like oh the fact that duval had like a wife and not only did he have a wife but she was disabled yeah like they and have she this tells her whole backstory in her one scene about how like 
oh, we were happy once and then we weren't. And then he said he wanted to leave me and I wouldn't let him and we had a fight and then I fell down the stairs and that's how I got paralyzed. And it's been a year since then. Yeah. Like it's. Oh. And his wife doesn't come back into the story at all. There's no. no reason for her to be in in the story. Yeah, it really feels like the movie's padding a lot. Um, the stream of consciousness narration, it's often ridiculous. Yeah, I think like either they shouldn't have had it or they should have had it go further, mm. right? Because it's just saying what is clearly happening. Yes, it's it's... It often comes across as a bit silly, yes. um, particularly because it's like so serious about itself and it's wholly unnecessary most of the time. And honestly, a lot of the time it feels like it's just dragging out the minutes because it'll be like, you know, Stella will walk up to Cheney and be like, doctor, do you want to go to a movie tonight? And then it'll like go to a close up on Cheney and he'll be like, Stella, my nurse. I've known her for 25 years. She's looking at me right now, asking about a movie. Should I go with a movie to with Stella or should I go home <laughs> with my wife who I've been married to for seven years, but I'm not happy with my wife. I should reply. I finish tying my tie and I look at Stella and then he like looks at Stella and he's like, yeah, it seems like a good idea. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's just, um, it feels like it's just there to like pad out the running time most of the time. And the way it starts feels so weird because it's literally Lon Chaney whispering, neurology, neurology. Yeah, it's all done as whispers too. Yeah. That's the thing. It's this stream of consciousness narration of like what his thoughts are. And Mark Steele is a guy who most of his thoughts are like reminding himself about where he is and who he's talking to, basically. He left the stove on, <laughs> Mark. Um, and yeah, and it's all in these whispers, which is really. I do. I think it's an interesting thing to have it be in as whispers. Mm. They could have been like, you know, stage whispers, right? So it's a little easier to make it out. Yes, because we are in like 1940s sound technology. Yes, but I I do think that was like a neat choice. I do think that, like, there's some good moody cinematography. Okay, so the reasons to watch this. Yes. J. Carol Nash. Yes. Already talked about. But yes, the lighting and cinematography are really interesting, especially knowing that Reginald Borg just did, like, musicals before this. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really cool shot where, as Mark is self-hypnotizing, there's, like, the shadow of the metronome moving part. Uh, going over his face. Mm -hmm. um, there's other moments where like they do some really interesting lighting effects. Um, they do. I think it's a little little cheesy when he's like driving to go to the cabin and yeah. we get the like Lisa needs braces kind right. of moment. But I, I applaud what they are doing. I think it's like an interesting thing. There's like interesting directorial choices being made. And especially with like Reginald Borg wanting to kind of prove himself mm -hmm. to Ben Pivar and like everyone else. Like it's really cool to see this from him. Yeah. And the movie has some decent production values, even though we're mostly just bouncing between like a couple of sets, right? Like we're mostly in the doctor's office and then like his apartment and the lodge and kind of back and forth. Um, but you know, it's a studio picture from the forties, so it looks good. 
you mentioned how for Universal to do this series, they only got basically licensing to use the name. They weren't allowed to use the creaking door that was very much tied to the radio program. Um, but they they sure pushed the limit on using the um, the organ. Oh, yeah. The yeah, jazz the, organ. Yeah, there is definitely a very radio show style organ, especially whenever the whisper narration comes in. We get that like, like kind of like radio organ. Yeah, which is fun. Uh, I didn't mention this in talking about the radio show, but often the organ would signal like a sting or something yeah. when death was coming near. And they do that here as well. Yeah, for sure. So this is kind of a mediocre movie. Yeah. I think the thing that's important to remember contextually is that like as a piece of entertainment designed to fill an hour at the movies, this is doing its job. Yeah. Um, it's not bad enough to be disagreeable. And this is a movie from an age when people went to the movies at least once a week, if not more, mm. as like a cheap thing to do in the evenings. You know, this is pre-television. And this is from an era when like you went to the movies and they'd just be running like a loop, you know, of A picture, B picture, comedy short, newsreel, animated short kind of thing. And you just sort of like paid your ticket and walked into the theater and sat down and were entertained until you wanted to leave. And then... You left, right? And mm -hmm. this is from an era like when you don't have yourself inundated with all these other forms of entertainment. Um, it's like this or reading a book or the radio, right? Yeah. And so I feel like when you watch movies from this period and you see stuff like this, it's good to remember like there isn't as much pressure on movies to be like top notch entertainment mm -hmm. that there is now when like going to a movie is like, okay, I'm making the decision to like leave my house where I have infinite entertainment options on my television or computer, go out to another location filled with strangers who might have COVID. And I'm going to spend like 15 to $20 on a ticket to go buy some like $20 popcorn to sit down in these big chairs in this huge theater with all of this big sound and like be trapped there for like two hours and then like go and go back to the parking lot, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a production yeah. to go see a movie. And so nowadays I feel like people rightly feel like a movie needs to be like worth that. And so when you see movies from this time period and you see stuff like this, that's very like mediocre. Um, I think it's important to remember that like to translate this movie to like nowadays, you know, this is like a Hulu original or something. I like maybe at one time, but nowadays you have like Amazon originals doing like the foundation adaptation. Sure. It's, it has the same, feeling as a um hallmark movie yeah just in like the sense of like you know you know what you're going to get when you're in and it's just going to be cotton candy in the sense of like mindless entertainment yeah and you know you'll have like a fine time because it's a fine enough time to pass an hour yeah but you're not going to be blown away and you're not going to be bored yeah theoretically it's, <laughs> theoretically yeah um yeah it's the kind of thing where like this is not a good movie, mm -hmm. but for what it was meant to do, which was like be good enough to fill someone's hour without making them like hate it. 
you know, it does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I completely uh, give the MVP of the cast to J.K. Nash, though. Oh, he absolutely. has so much fun with this. It's also just really nice to see him not playing an ethnic stereotype. Yeah, he's, he's uh, Inspector Greg. Like, there's nothing... Um, weirdly racist about him no i have no idea why jake carol nash who i believe was irish in descent like got pegged as like oh we need you know a japanese character or like an italian character or like a russian character or whatever like he just got to play all the ethnicities for some reason yeah no idea why that happened to him in terms of like his stereotype in his career but because he got typecast that way it's very rare to see jake carol nash like getting to play a role without having to do like a weird accent or a bizarre makeup. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of fun. You want to see a short King <laughs> call Dr. Death, right? <laughs> call inspector Greg. You call him Dr. Death is like eight feet tall. Lon Chaney is very big. Yes, it's true. They have many scenes together and it's like, <laughs> Oh man, the person having to stage or block this must've had There's- like, no hair at the end because they're just pulling out oh my gosh so like mark Steele's apartment is this like big penthouse suite kind of looking thing he has a butler yeah which is it's like dude you have a like four room apartment come on but regardless um the way it's laid out is you walk in and then there's like this sort of um like open concept foyer area into a living room and the foyer area is you walk in and then you take like two steps down and then there's the living room. And I swear that they did this just so that like Lon Chaney can be standing in the living room and then two steps up in the foyer can J. Carol Nash be standing so that they can talk to one another. Absolutely. Uh, well, folks, thank you for listening to April's bonus episode. Um, I hope you have enjoyed it. Yeah, we're able to do these horror-adjacent bonus episodes each and every month because of the support of our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, but patrons at any level get to vote in our monthly polls to determine what the movie for the horror-adjacent bonus episode will be. So, uh, you know... If you haven't joined the Patreon yet and you want to take part in those polls, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, next Wednesday. But until then, pleasant dreams. Hmm? Bye.